Um, if you're a member of Melanie Park Church, I uh, wanted to remind you that you should have received an email yesterday uh, for the vote of affirmation for Jeff Oldham serving as our executive pastor. So if you have not had a chance to uh, respond to that, please do so, so that we can get results out to our church family as, as soon as possible. So we're looking forward to that. Second thing is, uh, we had a terrific men's retreat. Uh, just a great group of guys, uh, Kyle and Josh did an amazing job. I'm always surprised, I don't know why, but uh, really surprised with how much the Lord can do in 24 hours in the hearts and lives of men in this church. And so, very, very grateful. If you weren't able to come to the men's retreat this year, would you please find someone who did and get them to tell you about what they learned? Because I think what the message we heard this weekend is of such significance. It doesn't need to stay in that cluster of men who came to the retreat. It really needs to spread throughout this body. So please, men who went, find somebody who didn't. Men who didn't, find somebody who did and learn more about what took place uh, this weekend because I think it's significant. Um, this morning as we get started, I want to thank you first for enduring what has been some of the most uh, difficult passages in all of Scripture. Difficult not necessarily because they're hard to understand, but difficult because they're hard to accept. I mean, no one likes to be confronted with the reality of their sin. But here's what's important. If we don't see and understand that sin is a really big deal, then a Savior is really not all that important. And so Paul has gone to great lengths to help us understand how big of a deal sin really is. In the first three chapters, he's been exposing all these dead-end roads to righteousness that we're prone to take. And each of them, each of these roads has their appeal, but they ultimately lead you nowhere. For example, some people head down the road of ignorance. These are the naive, those who really don't care enough to be concerned. In our world today, we might say they're chill. They just kind of go with the flow. They do what they want to do. This is where every man does what is right in their own eyes. But Paul says no one goes their own way without first rejecting God's truth. And so ultimately, ignorance is not an excuse. Because here's why. When we were created in God's image, we know very clearly from Scripture that He placed eternity in our hearts. And what that means is that there's, there's a longing within us that is not satisfied by anything this world has to offer. There is a, a search within us that desires to have meaning and purpose in life. And that is ultimately only satisfied in God alone. And Paul tells us that that longing within us is confirmed by everything that surrounds us, all of God's creation. Psalm 19 says that the heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. In other words, the, the beauty and order that you see all throughout creation speaks of its Creator. And Paul says that there is enough within us created by God's design and enough that surrounds us as we see throughout God's creation that everyone is without excuse. We only go our own way 
when we willfully reject God's truth that he has revealed. And when we do that, we head down a very desperate dead-end road. But there are some who think that they've found a road. They've found a way to get to heaven. They believe that there is a God, and they've found a way to please him. But as Paul tells us, that these people wrongly interpret God's mercy as a sign of his approval. These are the self-righteous. They believe good works exempt them from God's judgment. This group, as we learned, is quick to condemn others for their sin while ignoring their own sin. They believe that as long as the good outweighs the bad, that in the end, the scales of justice will tip in their favor. But Paul says no one, no one has the right to declare their own innocence. The road to self-righteousness is just another dead-end road. Last week, Matt talked about the road of religion, and he explained how the Jews relied on this list of rules as a means of salvation. And he explained how the Jews relied on this list, much like we rely on the church rituals that exist within our world today. We grew up in the church, or we were baptized, or we know all the Bible stories. But religious observation, both then and now, is a dead-end road. In the same way that the Jews were not exempt from God's judgment, then neither is any denomination. There is no church. There is no religious system that can save your soul. Religious observation is just another dead-end road to righteousness. And Paul could go on forever listing more and more examples that exist in our world then and then our world today, but he'll bring it to a final conclusion this morning because there is no road that leads to salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Salvation is not a path we take. It is a person that we meet. Salvation is not a truth that we discover. It is a truth that is revealed. But if we do not see the depravity of our own sin, we will not recognize our need for a Savior. And that is why this is so important for Paul as he impresses this upon us. So before we open up his word, let's go to the Lord together. Father, we want to be very humble as we open up the truth of your word, knowing that it has the power to redeem. And in the same way, within the truth of your word is the judgment that you proclaim that is just and right. And so, Lord, we want to understand what your word says to our hearts so that we might live it out faithfully as your people. So give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see, whatever it was this week that has been a distraction for us now, would you, by the power of your Spirit, just remove it? Just take it away and open our hearts to what you have to say. We pray this in your name. Amen. 
Before we look at this, you can turn to Romans chapter 3, but Paul's going to begin this first section kind of dealing with some of the frustrations that are found when people try to head down these dead-end roads, and he will do so by addressing four potential questions that address the concerns of those who are frustrated with these dead-end roads. Let's look at that together, beginning in chapter 3, verse 1. Paul writes and says, then what advantage has the Jew? Or is what benefit to the, uh, of circumcision? He answers and says, great, in every respect. First of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. So let me explain here. After explaining, as we learned last week from, from Matt, how the Jews are not exempt from God's judgment, Paul poses the next obvious question. Well then, if that's the case, then what advantage is there to being a Jew? Is there really any benefit to being set apart as God's people? And without hesitation, being a Jew himself, Paul says, absolutely, there's a benefit. There's an advantage in every respect. Namely, the Jews are the ones who receive the oracles of God. And what he means by that is that God spoke directly to the Jewish nation. And sometimes he spoke through his prophets, but there were times when God's voice actually spoke and was audible among the people of God. But in every case, and each time that happened, God was calling his people to a place of repentance so that they might turn to him for forgiveness. The Israelites were in a place of, of privilege because they heard directly from the living God. They were entrusted with these truths and they were commissioned to, to take these truths and to share them with other nations, sharing both the warnings of God's judgment, but also the promises of God's blessing for those who put their trust in him. That answer is then followed by a second question. Look at verse three. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Answer, may it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you must be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Even though they were entrusted with these truths, we know that many of the Jews rejected them. So Paul asked the question, if they rejected God, does that mean that God's going to reject them? Does God's faithfulness end where our unbelief begins? It's a good question, right? And Paul says emphatically, may it never be. And praise the Lord for that answer. What a blessing to know that God keeps his word to us even when we don't keep our word to him. He remains faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. The Bible says he wants none to perish, but all to come to repentance. So despite our rejection, God continues to speak of his judgment. He wants us to, to see our sin so that we might repent of our sin. And that call to repentance, don't miss that. That, that call to repentance is always paired with a promise of God's pardon. That's why he quotes from Psalm 51.4 in this passage. It, 
Might not surprise you to know that that particular psalm happens to be David's confession of sin with Bathsheba. And I want you to hear a little bit of what David wrote and the heart behind why Paul included this passage. I'm going to start in Psalm 51, verse 3. If you'll just listen as I read the words of David in this psalm. He writes and says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, God, against you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Do you see the, the heart behind why Paul included this in his passage? David trusted in God's faithfulness even when he knew and admitted and confessed that he had sinned against God and God alone. And that call to repentance, that, that desire of David, he knew that God would remain faithful to him. And that's why he said, cleanse me, purify me, wash me whiter than snow. You say the word, dear Lord, and it is done. Because you remain faithful to me, even when I have been unfaithful to you. That same psalm goes on in verse 17 and says, a broken and contrite, another word for contrite would be repentant. A broken and repentant heart, God will never, ever refuse. Now, look at the next question in verse 5. But... If our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? So here's the heart behind this question. Well, if God knows that we can't keep his commands, doesn't that make his judgments unfair or wrong in some ways? It sounds like we're kind of doomed from the beginning, right? And that's actually true. But our decision, our choice to sin, does, make, does not make God's judgments unfair. What would be unfair is if God let us, left us to ourselves, left us to, to remain in our sin with no hope of salvation. That would be unfair. But God is gracious to reveal our sin so that we can avoid His judgment. And His judgment is righteous because He has provided a solution for our sin. There's a way out. And we just have to put our trust in Him in that provision. And yet... We all know many will choose to go their own way and they'll take that grace for granted. Listen to how Paul explains it beginning in verse seven. But if through my life the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? 
And why not say, as we are slanderously reported, as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may occur. Their condemnation is just. And what Paul's saying here is just, this is a crazy idea, but we see it in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, where it says, shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? Paul's answer, may it never be. Our being bad is not what makes God look good. That's not how this works. Some of you, many of us probably are aware of all the the fires that are happening in California, and it's devastating. It's been going on for a long time, hasn't it? And there are a lot of very brave men and women who have risked their lives to save the lives of other people and to fight these fires. Now, you tell me, how foolish would it be for someone to step up and say, you know... Wouldn't it be better if we just light more fire so we could see more bravery? That's foolish. And the reason it's foolish is because they completely overlook the fact that those fires have cost people's lives. People have died. The same is true when it comes to sin. In fact, sin is much more devastating than any of those fires because its effect is eternal. By continuing in sin, we overlook the destructive nature of our decisions, both now and for eternity. So shall we continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. I think this last question finally kind of brings Paul to a point of exasperation. So he's going to make it very clear in this next passage. Listen to what he says beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace, they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, that's pretty conclusive, isn't it? In verse 9, Paul addresses the question, is anyone, is there anyone on the face of the earth since the history of man that is exempt from God's judgment? And his answer is emphatic, no. No one is exempt from God's judgment, whether Jew or Greek. And then he goes on to explain why. And let's unpack that a little bit. Look back at verse 10. He says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. Here, Paul is quoting from Psalm 53. We see the same thing in Psalm 14. But what's interesting is that both of those psalms begin in the very same way. They say this, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Our rebellion begins with our rejection. When we go our own way, we willfully reject God's rule in our life. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And they become the God unto themselves. 
our hearts are inclined to rebellion. No one is righteous, not even one. No matter how hard we try, no one can be good enough to match God's perfection. And anything less than God's perfection is what leads to condemnation. Our judgment is not based on how we compare ourselves with other people. Our judgment is ultimately based on how we compare with God. Our sin demands God's judgment. But our sin also limits our understanding. Our human reasoning cannot grasp spiritual truths. We see Paul writing about this when he writes to the Corinthians and he says, Paul, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them. As Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 1, he says, professing to be wise, they become what? Fools. This is like expecting a worm to understand what it means to be human. It's not within their created capacity, nor is it within ours to understand the things of God. So instead of seeking after God, in our sinful nature, we exchange the truth of God, as Paul has taught us, for a lie. Doing what is right in our own eyes. Determining what truth applies to us. So that in the end, we ultimately do whatever we decide we want to do. Paul says, that's why he says, all have turned aside, all have gone their own way. Now, he uses the word useless. He says they have become useless. Now, that word in the original language is intended to describe something that doesn't fulfill its intended design. So an example might be a bird without wings. A bird was designed to fly, but if it has no wings, it can't happen. A cheetah was designed to run, but if it had no legs, it, it can't happen. Well, in a similar way, sin does the same thing to us. It prevents us from fulfilling God's original design for us to flourish in a life-giving relationship with him. It renders us useless. Look at how he continues in verse 13. He says, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And Paul began the description by talking about the the corruption of sin in our character, and now he talks about the, the corruption of sin in our conduct. Because what comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what has filled the heart. Jesus taught about this in his ministry when he says the good man out of his good treasure brings forth what is good. And the evil man out of his evil treasure brings forth what is evil. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. And a sinful heart speaks hurtful words, words of betrayal, words of abuse, words that put others down in order to build themselves up, cynical words, selfish words, condescending words. Because apart from God, our world centers around us. 
Look at how he continues in 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known, there is no fear of God before them. I think that last sentence may be the best description for understanding the entire passage. So let me read that again. He says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When we don't fear God, it means that we are ultimately unwilling to submit to his authority. If you're a parent, you know that a child who does not respect your authority is ultimately going to rebel against you, right? A child who does not respect the authority of his parents will always rebel against them. And in the very same way, when we don't respect the authority of God, when we don't submit to the authority of God, we do the very same thing to him. Like a child, we think we know what's best for us. So we do what we want to do. And in the wake of our selfish sin, we see bitterness, we see anger, and ultimately we see broken relationships. Our life is marked by turmoil and not by peace. Sinful rebellion always leaves a wake of destruction and misery in its path. That's the point that Paul is trying to make. Look at how he continues in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all of the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I was thinking about this passage and especially these last two verses I began to think to myself, I wonder what would be the worst imaginable judgment of God that, I could, come, that could come to mind? I mean, just think about that for a minute. What, what would be the worst imaginable judgment of God that could come to your mind? Would it be fire from heaven or, or plagues upon the earth, some form of torment or, or, or disaster of some kind? Would that, would that be the worst possible judgment of God? You, know, you see, I think the worst possible judgment of God would be for God to leave us to ourselves. That would be the worst possible judgment of God I could ever imagine. Because left to ourselves, controlled by our sin, we have no hope of salvation. But God. Because he is rich in mercy, he did not leave us to ourselves. He wrote his law upon our hearts. Paul's made that clear. He spoke that law through the prophets and through his word. We know that the word ultimately became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the the person and work of Jesus Christ. And the scripture tells us that Jesus did not come to judge the world, but so that the world may be saved. Through him. God did not leave us to ourselves, but he has provided a way for salvation. Everything that God has done is intended to bring us to the knowledge of our sin 
That was the whole purpose of the law. The law was never intended to remove our sin. It was to remind us that we are a sinner in need of a savior and that we have to trust in God alone to provide that solution. Because if we do not see the depravity of our sin, we will not trust in Jesus as our savior. And in the absence of a savior, Jesus becomes just a good moral teacher who happens to have good advice. But we don't need good advice. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We need to be rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And I want you to think about what that very familiar passage is intending for us to understand. When Jesus came into this earth, he entered into the domain of darkness. And when Jesus came, he lived among those whose lives were ruled by sin. And the goal of his ministry, don't miss this, the the goal of his ministry was to reveal our sin so that we might turn to him and find forgiveness. If you don't believe that's true, then you can look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, which records the very first words of Jesus when he began his ministry on earth. And do you know what he said? He said, repent. Repent of your sin. For the kingdom of heaven, the solution that God has provided is now at hand. And that call to repentance is always paired with a promise of God's pardon for those who trust in him. For if we confess our sin, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That's what David said. Say the word and I will be washed as white as snow. It makes all the difference in the world when we live with that hope. Some of you probably read when you were in school the book called The Lord of the Flies. You remember that? If you didn't read it, you'll know that it's a story. uh, I'll tell you it's a story of a a group of young boys who get stranded on an island, and they have to fend for themselves. And at first, they do pretty good. They kind of form this cooperative society. They divide up tasks, and they are going to work hard together for their survival But over time, most of the boys abandoned their society for savagery. Even to the point in the story where they kill some of the weaker boys to get what they want. Only a very few remained civil in the midst of this time. And do you know what the one crucial factor was that divided the savage from the civil? You know what it was? Hope of rescue. Hope of rescue. See, in the absence of that hope, the boys became so savage that they were ruled by evil and hatred. In the absence of hope, they were ruled by evil and hatred. Now think about that. And think about what's happening in our world today. Those who are imprisoned by sin have no hope for rescue. Every man for himself, every woman for herself. This is why I believe we see our society becoming more and more evil and hateful with time. But as a Christian, that should not be true for us because we do have a hope. 
we live with the certain conviction of God's redemption. Our hope, we sing this, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And that makes all the difference in the world, literally. The hope within us is the only answer to all the wrong that is happening around us. The only question is, does your life proclaim that hope to the world in which we live? See, that hope, that assurance of God's rescue is the only way that we can sacrifice our own needs for the good of someone else. Otherwise, we need to protect what we have. But when we have all we need, we can let it all go for the good of someone else. It's how we live with joyful reliance in God's faithful provision. When you live with hope, it changes how you see life. So which one describes you? Fearful desperation or peaceful dependence? When your life is hidden in Christ, your heart is filled with hope. Living with that hope is what puts the gospel on display in the world in which we live. Amen? Let me pray for us and then we'll close in song. Lord, thank you for not sparing us the hard truths, the truths of our sin and the effect of that sin in separating us from a life-giving relationship with you that we were ultimately created for. Thank you, Lord, that you placed within us when we were created in your image a piece of eternity, a part of, uh, of what we were created to experience that causes us to long for something more than this world has to offer. Lord, I pray that we ultimately find our satisfaction and our hope in you. And when we do, Lord, I pray that that just overflows out of our lives into the world around us, a world that is searching for something that has hope in it. It's not in governments. It's not in solutions Within our society, those things won't give us the hope that our heart desires. It is ultimately only found in Jesus. That's our only hope. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live with that assurance and we would speak with confidence of that truth. And then it would change the way we see life and live life in our world today. And we pray this in your name. Amen.